I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks especially to if you have recommended the show to a friend or enemy. It's, re- it's the only way really people hear about the show, and a remarkable number of people do hear about the show this way. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I really uh, prefer word of mouth. I think it is the best. It's the best way to pass along good news about poems, podcasts, and most other things. So, so please do take a moment sometime this week just to tell someone you think might like the show uh, that he ought to listen, or she, or they. I read a been reading an article about pronouns. Any pronoun uh, that your friend should prefer, uh, tell them about the show. Uh, thanks also to everybody who subscribes to the Secret Show. I was going to release this episode, this you know part two episode on the Secret Show, but mostly because it it includes in it a new poem. It's in, uh, in if I were texting this to uh, to Alice, I would put asterisk asterisks on either side of a new poem, a new poem from Joshua Megan, which is really big news. Uh, and so I, I just, I wanted to make that available to everybody. Um, it's, it's not new to, you know, I'm not breaking the news on it. It did originally appear in image, but, uh, but I wanted to, uh, wanted other people to get to hear it and, and hear some of my dumb thoughts about it. Cause I think it's quite good. Uh, also got some really great, <laughs> I've already gotten a lot of feedback about the first half of this episode, uh, much of it contentious, and I welcome all of it. Uh, and please, if you have any thoughts, good, bad, or indifferent, do write in. Uh, I respond in this part to to some, I think, pretty strong challenges I got a while back from Shane. And it's a, you know, this things get a little, uh, get a little, comp- not competitive, like things get a little... I get to dig in a little bit, you know, like this is some, he had some challenging, he had some challenging words and he is in fairness to him. He is an unfailingly sweet and polite man. So he's actually wrote, he's actually written several other notes since then. Uh, but, but I was really glad to get some, some sort of hard questions from him. And I try to respond to them in, uh, in, you know, in a forthright manner. Uh, so please do, Please do write in and uh, uh, let me know what you think about any and all of this. Oh, and the, uh, the the I do talk about some Marilyn Nelson poems. One of them is just not available anywhere online. The other one is in the packet that Brian Brodeur created that I linked to in my episode with him. I believe I should also have a link to it in this this uh, episode's show notes. But that that's where it is if you have any questions. Uh, and you can always just write in and let me know one way or the other. Um, again, the uh, email address for me is sleerickets at gmail.com. I hope to hear from all of you. And here is the second half of this possibly already top three most controversial episodes of this podcast. Did not, totally not intentional. Did not plan that at all. But uh, here, here we go. Which is to say, in my loose plans for this episode, I meant to have a segment on that, on Richard Corey. And I don't really know how I'm gonna shape it or how I'm going to fit it into the rest of the episode, but I knew, do know that I wanted to have something covering that and that I might, if I were to come up with some sort of segue or some sort of link to the larger thread of the episode, it might be, I might do it like this. I might say, when we talk about meaning, and when in particular someone like Viktor Frankl talks about meaning, I pro- meaning I promise I'm not going to just go on another rant about Viktor Frankl. I do think that the way he talks about meaning is very much, has a lot in common with the way when we talk about the meaning. Well, when we talk about meaning in the context of the meaning of someone's life or finding meaning, I asked Ryan about this. I said, what do you think? We had a long drive to New Haven and back to Baltimore. And I, and I said, what do you think about this question of meaning? This was when I was sort of planning the the Victor Frankl episode, I think, and I, I I said, what do you, what do you think we mean when we talk about the meaning of someone's life? And he said, well, I think, I think a lot of what we're talking about is purpose. He didn't say that was everything, but he said that you know that seemed like a lot of it. Purpose was a lot of it, and I think he's I think he's right. And I actually think that that when Victor Frankl says he's he's talking about man's search for meaning, I think I think he actually is probably mostly talking about man's search for purpose. And I I break down purpose into sort of two variables. 
And both of these, I think, are aspects of meaning. What does it mean that this has happened? Or what does this mean to you? What is the meaning of this in your life? What does narcissism mean to me, if we're Tony Hoagland? When we talk about meaning, I do think that part of what we're talking about is, is purpose. And it tends to be by way of these sort of these two, uh, these two variables that I think combined produce something like purpose. And these variables are what I think of as care and consequence. Right? Some of what we mean when we talk about meaning is care. What does this mean to you? Well, what do you care about? What's your investment in it? I want to do something meaningful with my life. I want to do something I, I can care about. I can put myself into. You know, in the Heideggerian sense, there's a, you know, one of the, one of the I think sort of crude ways you could summarize part of uh, Heidegger's argument of being in time is that the meaning of being in his account is care. The way in which we care, we invest ourselves in things. That's that's what the meaning of being comes to for us. I think I think that that is a lot of what people like Frankel are talking about, a lot of what Ryan's talking about, a lot of what most of us are talking about when we talk about you know wanting some meaning in our lives. Right? When we talk about a child bringing meaning into your life or a change in profession bringing meaning to your life, a spouse bringing meaning to you, we're talking about care. Now, we're also talking about, especially when we, we talk about purpose, because purpose is not just care. It's not just your investment. It's something beyond yourself. It's something outside just your own personal connection. We're also talking about consequence. When something has an effect in the world, right? What, is, what does it mean that this particular bank has, uh, has gone under? What does it mean that, uh, that you failed this test? What does it mean that this limb has become gangrenous? Right? Well, there are consequences. That's what meaning means in that context. It means that something is going to follow as a result. And when we find meaning in our lives, usually there is a sort of a combination of care, of a personal investment, with a sense of consequence. This is leading to something. This has some kind of effect beyond itself, right? That's, that's, that's definitely true when we talk about uh, a, a profession or a child, right? I'm invested in it. It is meaningful to me, but also it's meaningful more broadly because it, it carries out into the world. There's something that it, it, it leads to and it matters that I am putting my time and my energy and my thought and my talent into this because it is leading to something. It is It has consequence. And so I, I think that that's, that's a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about meaning. We talk about care. We talk about consequence. And when people say things like, hey, don't envy Richard Corey because he's just as he, because, you know, if you were him, you would just be wanting what he wants. You'd still be miserable. And don't complain because other people have it worse than you. Right? This is all a way of saying that everybody's care sort of counts the same. And who can really say what, you know, uh, uh, Matt Wall also likes to use this sort of this common, I think of as a sort of a loophole, the, the causality loophole. He says, hey, you never know where that poem of yours that you wrote might go in the world. You never know who, whom it might touch. I think you probably would not say whom. But uh, I'm not, not, because he, not because he's unsophisticated, but because he's a man of the people, because he's authentic in a Heideggerian sense, not just in a Bukowskian sense. But I think this is a common argument, right? Like we never, you know, Van Gogh was discovered after his death. You never know. You, you, hey, who, who am I to say? what all this is going to amount to. You know, your kid could grow up to be the president. You don't know. And that's true. We don't totally know what the consequences of our actions are. There's also that, you know, that's the, the Ozymandias argument, right? You, you build an empire and, hey, maybe it's all going to crumble to dust. And what's going to last is the poem inspired by the, um, the traveler from an antique land. Is that the phrase he uses? 
Maybe that's what's going to survive beyond all of your uh, sneers of cold command. And, you know, there's truth to that. But in my meaning and meaninglessness episode, the, the qualification I wanted to offer, the kind of the wrinkle I wanted to provide to make this all much harder and less comfortable has to do with this third aspect of meaning. That when we talk about meaning in the context of finding meaning in your life, in, a, in what I think of as like a therapeutic context, in a self-help context, when we talk about meaning, we're talking about care and consequence. We're talking about consequence. What is your what do your actions lead to? And what can you know? And to some extent, you can't know what they lead to. But what you can know is what you care about and what you choose to invest yourself in. And you know, at the end of your life, they say, Hey, are you really re- re- gonna regret not working harder? No, you're gonna regret not spending more time with your kids. And you know what? Your kids are great. I love your kids. I would spend as much time as I could with them. However, Saying that what you're going to regret on your deathbed is what you should should dictate what you do with the rest of your life is like saying that what you're going to say when you're 16 and horny should dictate what you're going to do for the rest of your life. That's just when you're on your deathbed. You don't, we already know that at that, you know, that just as, you know, we don't remember what it was like to be three at this point in our life, midlife, you're not going to remember in your deathbed, assuming it's not tomorrow, what it's like to be the age you are now, or you're barely going to remember it. And you're certainly not going to have the same perspective. And you're certainly not going to know all the things you know now. You're not right to dismiss the thoughts and feelings you have now, because eventually in that particular fixed moment, you're going to wish for different things. You're going to wish for a lot of different things. My granddad on his deathbed, you know what he said? My dad said, my dad said hey, dad, what do you want? What can I get you? <laughs> my granddad was one of the most honest things he ever said. Well, he was actually a pretty honest guy, but I think it was one of the most honest things I have ever heard reported from a deathbed. He said, what do I want? I want to be young again. Right? And God bless him. I'm sure that's what I will say as well. I think the thing that we leave out in these conversations and that makes the whole argument about how no one's life is any more meaningful or meaningless than anyone else's or worse worse the worse argument though which is the, which is an argument victor frankel makes not that i'll bring his name up again it is an argument he makes though is that, it, that some lives are more meaningful than others but guess what to the extent to which those lives are more meaningful to the extent to which those other lives are less meaningful it's a, entirely the responsibility of the person whose life it is that is if your life is less meaningful than anyone else's life then typically self-help gurus will tell you that is absolutely your fault you are the only one who can determine whether your life is more meaningful than anyone else's because your care is up to you and that i would tell you in my theoretical meaning and meaninglessness episode that is fucking bullshit wrong some lives are more meaningful than others and it has nothing to do with the choices of the people involved it has to do with the third element of meaning that we typically don't bring up when we are talking about uh, the therapy, when we're talking about the meaning of your life, when we're talking about finding your meaning, when we're talking, you're talking about, you know, uh, 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 self-discovery, we're talking about self-help, when we're talking about recovery as well. What we don't talk about when meaning comes up in these conversations is not just the third aspect of meaning, the primary definition of meaning the main thing that meaning means, which is not care, not consequence, but correspondence. Correspondence. That is what we mean when we talk about meaning all of the time. That is almost the only thing we mean when we talk about meaning, except in the context of 
making people feel better about their own disappointing conditions. It's only when we are talking about the meaning of your life that we forget about correspondence. We set correspondence aside and we say all that really matters is what you care about. And, you know, to the extent that it is within your capacity to care, you know, where, where, you, where you foresee consequence emerging from your, from your choices, from your investments. But no, most of what we mean, what I mean when I say what we mean, the primary definition of meaning is correspondence. The word, if I am not mistaken, the etymology of mean is minare, is to threaten, specifically to threaten, to goad, in order to lead, in order to lead an animal from one place to another. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is what I intend. When I'm taking you from this place to another place, when I am breaking this spot where I express my meaning and I am linking it to another spot, I'm establishing a correspondence between two things and saying this matches that. That's what meaning is. And when it comes to correspondence, all things are not equal. All people's investments, all people's lives, all people's visions are not remotely equal. That's what the chorus of the Simon and Garfunkel song understands so well. You're right, Richard Corey is miserable. And maybe his care is as uh, uh, small-minded, as flawed, as petty as that of anyone else's. But the correspondence, what his life corresponds to, is way bigger, way more substantial. Right? And yes, maybe we don't know what the ultimate consequences of our actions are going to be. But we do know what our lives correspond to. So I, I, um, I'm not sure, again, how I would tie all these things together, but that's some of what I wanted to get across in my meaning episode. I want to come back to this thing. Shane wrote me a note that has been really much on my mind lately. I'm going to, get, I'm going to come back to this in an episode, but, but he, he said a, a little while ago in a note that I've, I've saved up as an open tab on my computer, he said, as far as I can tell, what you seem to want from poetry is information. You seem to want poetry to do the same thing prose does. Yeah, so he, he talked about information, and he talked about information again when he wrote to me about, he said, um, I think I said in the argument, and I said in the conversation with, with Brian Broger that it was, I think I think I, I, I used at the center the the Sam Gwynn poem about cancer, the cancer center. I used that as an example of poetry providing in simple language something other than information and Shane said well that's really no kind of counterexample I'm paraphrasing here but he said basically like that poem may as well have been called cancer like that poem in no way didn't convey information I think he totally has a point uh, I've had I've had this feeling about a lot of I've got some like I've gotten some sort of meaty criticism lately I got a long long note from Elijah about the problems with the new formalists and I may get into them more on another episode. I thought they were fairly damning. I mean, enough so that I just sort of got depressed. And that night I had a, um, I had a meeting with the, the ladies I do. My, I was told by New York Magazine with the new rules, they said never refer to a group of women as ladies. Fucking damn it. I'm just losing words here left and right. At any rate, I, with, my, with my two adult female writing, <laughs> writing group, fellow co-participants I uh, at a meeting that night we wrote a poem the way we usually do we came up with a prompt together we, we shared a prompt together and then muted our computers and just sat in, in front of each other's cameras and wrote a poem for an hour uh, and I started a handful of different poems two or three and gave up on them partway through and then I just started writing in free verse and I thought about what Shane said, and I just thought, all right, well, I guess I'll just write information, right? I'll just abandon music. Because he also said, uh, Shane is pretty harsh about my, he, he's pretty dismissive of my fondness for music in the, uh, 
formalist sense. Um, he does go on to say at that I, that said I liked at the center, um, and he has a few other criticisms that I that I sort of agree with. But but I thought about this question of information. I thought, well, I guess I'll I'll just try to convey information. And I I remembered something, which is that yeah, this is true that there is something to there's something to dismissals of plain spoken poetry that say all it does is convey information. That's the same thing prose does. And I don't think, I think Cameron and Shane are right to challenge the sort of the rote formalist claim that, aha, we write with music and therefore we're not writing prose. That I think, you know, I think that, that that's not really probably enough. It's probably not really enough just to write with rhyme and meter. I think you can still effectively write prose with rhyme and meter. It's scannable prose might be pretty prose. It might be, it might have music. Unlike all those fucking blurbs on the backs of free verse books that say, as Ryan pointed out years ago, he said, all these blurbs on free verse books praising the music inside. And you're like, what music, man? What? what? Is music just another one of these words we use like poetry now to mean anything but the actual thing it means itself? But I thought about that question of information. What I remembered was that it's hard to convey information. It's really hard to convey information. I do think information's a little bit unfair. I think saying all you want from, that if you like plain spoken poetry, all you want is information. I think that's a little bit like saying, if, if you like twisted, contorted, charged poetic language, you're just going to poetry to get vocabulary. I think that would be sort of a fair correspondent to you just going to portrait to get information I think, I think that's sort of probably about equivalent uh, no it's information is, is is quite reductive I think there is such a thing as say knowledge or even meaning but it's difficult to do that it's really really hard to convey meaning to convey even information in uh, in text and print. If I were doing my proper meaning and meaninglessness episode, I wouldn't here have a brief digression about chat GPT, which I've been hearing so much about lately. There's a lot to say about it. And I do talk with Stephen Marsh a little bit about it. I just wanted to jump in and just, just take a moment to, to really offer my, my appreciation for all of the computer programmers out there. I just want to say that like, you know, there are a lot of problems you could solve. There are a lot of things you could be working on, but, but, but God bless you for taking the time to put writers and artists out of a job. Because, you know, if there's anything, if there's any problem, if there's any overwhelming challenge that we've been facing in the 21st century, it's the, it's the, the stranglehold that creative writers and illustrators have had on our on our economy and our political system and thank you god bless you i tip my hat to you for breaking that stranglehold by by by, by putting a lot of writers and artists out of a fucking job well done uh, uh congratulations thank there's no one else you could have put out it's not like you could have made a chat gpt for uh for insurance executives no you had to put artists and writers out of a job well done very, but again, I wouldn't have that digression if I were actually doing my meeting and meaninglessness episode. As I was saying, however, I thought about this question of information and I thought, it's not just information. Like setting aside how difficult it is, how difficult it is to convey something clearly in simple words. It's really not easy to do. But even if it were easy to do, it's not the information I go to poetry for. It's not even just the meaning that I go for. It's the meaning conveyed in a particular order, right? I, I read today, I read The Home Place, the book that Austin recommended by Marilyn Nelson. I think when she published it, she, she had the last name Waniak. It's uh, her collection from 1989, it was a finalist for the National Book Award. Uh, and it's good. I enjoyed it. I just, again, gave it a first read. There are a handful of poems in there I've read a few times. Most of them I've read only once. And, and it's good. I enjoyed it. I do think that it is a little bit of a mixed bag. I think there are... I think there, 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 there's a small number of 
pretty strong standalone poems. I think I think there is an experience you get if you read the poem as a whole. You get a larger sense of the family, the family history that she's presenting uh, as a whole, and I think that is uh, powerful. I think also, though, to be really fair, that there is a large, like a, a significant part of what is happening in this book is that she is going through something. Like she, Marilyn Nelson, is going through something when it comes to her life and her family and even the meaning of her poetry. And, you know, there are times where I thought, like in the long last poem, you're have the last, actually the last few poems, like this is a moment when like you are going through something yourself and it matters to you that this poem is being written and that you are establishing something about your family history. But that doesn't necessarily translate to us there I, I i saw there's a there's a um this is not the best poem in the book but i think it's a, it's a snappy poem it's an effective poem it's called alderman and i thought this was a good example of the difference between information and knowledge or information and meaning because again you know when i read horace there's no news there there's no new information really that i'm getting from him certainly not the you know, hundredth time I read it. And there's not even really any new knowledge or new wisdom to use the traditional hierarchy of these things. But when conveyed in a certain way, in a certain order, certain meanings can have an effect. And I thought this poem maybe provided a kind of a neat clarification of some of these questions. So this is called Alderman. This is from, uh, again, Marilyn Nelson's book, The Home Place. Uh, the character in the poem is um, Pomp, who is a the son of Deverne, who was a woman born into slavery, and she, uh, she had Pomp by uh, the white man who owned her. Um, and then they later had another relationship. It's, it's, as you might imagine, in no way a, um, an easy or easy to uh, characterize relationship. But Pomp is the name of the, the child she had. He grows up to be a, a sort of a significant figure in his community. He owns some local businesses and he's an influential man. So this poem's called Alderman. There's one word in the poem I'm going to alter very slightly i think for fairly obvious reasons if you have any real questions about it i'll try to find a link to the poem you can read but i think it should be pretty obvious what it is and why i'm slightly modifying it this is alderman by marilyn nelson one year the town republicans asked pomp if he would mind if they put him up for office pomp told them they were kind but he had seven children and a wife he cared about he was too young to die, which he sure would, without a doubt, if his name stood on that ballot. Two white men came to call a few days later at his store, younger than he, but tall like he was. They told Pomp he was their brother. It ain't your fault you had a Negro mother. They said they'd stand behind him if he ran. After they left, the local Ku Klux Klan sent Pomp a message. Boy, we understand you need to learn your place. If the poem ended there, and a lot of the poems in this book effectively do end there. They end with a characterization of the conditions of life in a particular time at a particular place. And they're sharp and they're biting and they're well-written and they are even uh, poignant, though I think in a limited way. Right? If that were it, then we would come away. I would come away saying, "Wow!" So those are very, some very specific and you know deeply unjust, uh, but also you know um, um, clear and credible conditions that these people were living in. And clearly, the things Pomp understands that the the local Republicans don't understand and they're different worlds that, that these two you know, groups of people exist in, even, even side by side. Uh, and, and what a, you know, what a terrible past that our country still has to live with. 
And that would be a piece of writing worth reading. I think it would not be an especially effective lyric poem. That is, that is pretty, that's information well conveyed. But that's information that I think is probably right. I think though Nelson handles uh, the rhymes nicely and she uses, I think, nicely compressed language and there's a little bit of uh, play in how she suspends some of the information from one line to the next. I think basically that poem could be pretty effectively paraphrased as prose. But that's not the end of the poem. I'm going to back up a couple lines and I'll read you the end. So this is after the the two well-meaning white men can't come and they tell Pomp that they're his brother and they understand and, and they'll stand by him if he runs for, for alderman because they want a Republican um, in that county or in that um, town. After they left, the local Ku Klux Klan sent Pomp a message. Boy, we understand you need to learn your place. And Pomp withdrew because the Klan was wrong. By God, he knew right so there i mean it's not just that she makes use of two meanings of the word new that is to know one's place i'm not sure if it's playing on new or on place right there is one sense in which pomp knows his place because he knows the conditions under which he's living he knows that his life will be forfeit at the hands of these terrorists if he does run for office but of course, what the clan means is his place as they see it, as someone who's less of a person than they are. Right? And so it's not just that I think that's nicely done. I think that's a nicely handled little compression, but that's not all that's happening. What's really being conveyed here is not any new information. I mean, we're told that he withdraws. But that's not really what we're told. We're, we, what, what it is conveyed to us, the meaning that we receive from this little coda is something about Pomp's experience, about what it's like to be him, what it is like to be a bat under these conditions. It's not just the fact of the conditions themselves. It is what it's like to actually inhabit it. And that is, you know, I, I heard a really fascinating conversation with Daniel Dennett recently. The, um, he is the philosopher who coined the term deepity. And he specifically took on Thomas Nagel's argument. And he, he said um, he was challenged by, I can't remember, it was another philosopher who, who challenged him. But the, the, the challenge to him was, now, all right, so imagine that if there was a team of scientists and they traveled around with you and they followed you everywhere you went and they took notes on you and they had all of your legal records and all of your medical records and they had done interviews with your whole family and they watched you when you were asleep and they took your blood pressure when you were awake and they noted every single thing that happened in your life right this is what the philosopher proposed to Dennett. they said imagine this team who's better informed about you than anyone could imagine being informed about anyone. He said, now there would still be something about being Daniel Dennett that you would know that they would not know. And Dennett's response was, I don't think that's true. I think they would probably know better than I do who I am fascinating proposition uh, I think you can make an argument I think you can make a pretty good argument that that team of scientists might well know more about being Daniel Dennett than he knew about being himself but I think what he's very wrong about is that there is something there is a thing that is the actual internal experience the what it is likeness of being a bat, of being Daniel Dennett, of being Pomp, the, who's not a fictional character, by the way, who is actually Marilyn Nelson's uh, great grandfather, I think. 
there is an actual thing there to know. And that is the thing that I think is conveyed in poetry. And that's not information. Though in this context, at least, it might be largely translatable. Now, that's not my that's not my whole account of why I care for poetry as a genre. That was sort of one of the larger questions Shane was getting to. I'll read more of his note and, and give a, a more thorough answer later. But again, in my hypothetical episode on meaning and meaninglessness, I would read this Alderman poem. Um, and maybe I'll read it one more time. Or maybe, you know what I'll read is... Um, this, uh, this other poem I mentioned a couple times in the conversation with Brian Broger. This is a poem called Balance. And when I read it before my conversation with him, I had only read a handful of poems from this book. I had not read the whole book. And so I didn't understand there was a piece of information that I was missing. Um, I'll read you the poem once and I'll tell you the information and I'll, I'll read it one more time. It's called Balance. There are a few lines that are, um, the three lines that are set in italics. I think it's fairly clear they are spoken in lines of dialogue and they are, they are written in dialect, which is to say mostly that they're written in what we, we think of as uh, AAVE or you know Black American English. Balance. He watch her like a coonhound watch a tree. What might explain the metamorphosis he underwent when she paraded by with tea cakes in her fresh and shabby dress, as one would carry water from a well, straight-backed, high-headed, like a diadem, with careful grace so that no drop will spill, she balanced, almost brimming, her one name. She thinks she's something, stuck-up island bitch, chopping wood, hanging laundry on the line, and tantalizingly within his reach. She honed his body's yearning to a keen, sharp point. And on that point, she balanced life. That hoe de Verne thinks she Mars Taylor's wife. So the word I didn't understand the first few times I read this poem was Mars, which is capitalized, Mars Tyler. And I assumed Mars was either a name or a nickname. It's not, it is a title. That is one of the three lines written in dialect. And Mars, as became clear on reading the book as a whole, is a corruption of the word master, master Tyler. That Ho de Verne thinks she master Tyler's wife, which sort of reframes the whole poem. These are the other slaves watching her make a kind of appeal to him, put on a sort of show for him, again, with highly mixed motives, highly mixed experience of her own, never really expressed to us, right? We are not really seeing this scene through Deverne's eyes. We are seeing it through the eyes of the other slaves watching her and watching her not in a particularly sympathetic light as she goes about her business. Maybe in her own mind, none of this is happening. Maybe in her own mind, she's not particularly thinking about uh, Master Tyler. Maybe she's not particularly thinking about anything but getting her work done. Maybe she's daydreaming about something else. But in the minds of those who are watching her, she has a certain haughtiness, a certain pride that she derives from this fraught relationship with Tyler, if you can call it that. There's another line in, the poem, in, the, in a different poem in which uh, Nelson says, and it wasn't rape in a really pointed moment that makes that hard to take as any kind of simple statement. I'll read this poem one more time just because I think it it captures something really, that really, I think it just rings really true when it comes to how we watch other people and imagine what's happening in their minds and how they might think we're watching them. Right? Again, there's no information conveyed here. I was lacking some information that helped me appreciate the poem more fully, but I didn't go to this poem for information. I went to it and I come back to it because of how it conveys knowledge. 
It's not knowledge I was lacking or that I forgot that I need to return to the poem to receive again. It's just that when you convey this knowledge to a human person in a certain order, with a certain rhythm, in a certain sound, with a certain music, in a certain pace, in a certain way, it does something. It calls up a feeling of recognition and some other feelings too, maybe. All right, once more, this is Balance by Marilyn Nelson. He watch her like a coonhound watch a tree. What might explain the metamorphosis he underwent when she paraded by with tea cakes in her fresh and shabby dress? As one would carry water from a well, straight-backed, high-headed, like a diadem, with careful grace so that no drop will spill, she balanced, almost brimming, her one name. She thinks she's something, stuck-up island bitch. Chopping wood, hanging laundry on the line, and tantalizingly within his reach, she honed his body's yearning to a keen, sharp point. And on that point she balanced life. That hoe de Verne thinks she Mars Tyler's wife. Now, something that I think is sort of fascinating about this poem is that obviously the, the italicized lines seem to be spoken by the, the other slaves who, who have a sort of a jaded view of de Verne. But the question of the poem, what might explain the metamorphosis, this is a metamorphosis that Tyler undergoes. And some of the language, right, he, he's, she's seen as a, a, has bearing a diadem on her head with a careful grace. She's seen as tantalizing, as, in, as if almost teasing him, as if she's aware of what she's doing to him. We might be tempted to say that the, the non-italicized section, right, the section that's not written in dialect, we might be tempted to say, well, that's Tyler's internal monologue set in a third person and a close third person narrator. I don't think that's quite right, though. I think that this might be the perspective of someone who can look into Tyler's mind, but who actually has an even, ultimately an even more penetrating perspective. Because as much as Tyler might be seeing, as much as distorted as his vision might be by, by his own self-centeredness, by the way in which he, he sees Deverne as being finally a, a secondary character in his own story. He's not thinking about the risk she runs to herself by this temptation of him, if that's in fact what she's doing, or if that's just what, what he sees, which also the other slaves see. I think this is Nelson herself looking at the scene through history and taking in all of these things that are happening in the minds of all of those who are watching Deverne. I think Deverne is maybe the one person we don't hear from in this poem. We hear from her in a, a, some later poems, and it's much more, the perspective is much more torn than this one. Anyway, I think, you know, that's a partial answer to Shane's challenge about information, but I thought it was a good one, and it's one I'm continuing to to think about. This has gone on for a long time. It's going to be a long, I think I'm going to leave this one long. I'm going to edit it down a little bit, but I think this is going to be a long fucking episode because again, it's not actually an episode. It's just a broad summary of an episode I'll never end up making. And I think to finish it, there's a poem I've been meaning to talk about on the show for a little while. Um, I probably cannot give it the treatment it deserves, but I want to say at least something about it. And I want to, if nothing else, bring it to your attention because as Shane pointed out to me when he, he sent it to me initially, uh, it's a big event. This is a poem that's a big deal. It's a current, its existence, its appearance is a big deal. This is a poem called Done on This Side. Uh, it came out in Image Magazine, which is a religious magazine. It's a religious magazine. I can't ever remember if it's actually a Christian magazine or if it's just religious broadly. I think it's mostly Christian, but I know they publish stuff that's religious um, in, in various different traditions. This is from issue 113. Um, done on this side is the first poem published by Joshua Megan in nine years, I think. 
Is that right? It's 2014, is that when Accepting the Disaster came out? I don't think he's published a poem since then. He's written a lot of poems, but he hasn't published any except this one that I know of. And I believe his comment on this was, if you loved my old poems, then you'll be sure to be totally alienated by this one. <laughs> now there's a <coughs> there's an image accompanying this poem of Saint Lawrence being grilled to death. He was uh, he was martyred by being tied to a metal uh, grid and grilled um, until famously he. He announced, I'm done on this side. You can turn me over now, <laughs> which is which is a pretty good joke. I mean, was does the line, uh, what's his name, said when he was being pressed to death uh, in the, after the Salem Witch Trials, he said, more weight, which is good, but I'm done on this side, I think is really, I think that one's, I think that takes the prize. I don't know if the image provided is the image that is described in the poem. It seems at least to share a lot of qualities with the image described in the poem, but the poem is a lengthy piece of ekphrasis, or at least it seems to be a lengthy piece of ekphrasis. So this is a poem, initially it seems just to be describing the martyrdom itself, and then it becomes clear with the note, with a note about um, a green cloth, a fortuitous green cloth, because um, I think this must be the image that he's describing, because the the genitals of the characters are covered in the sort of the whimsical manner of uh, a lot of Renaissance paintings, where there's a, 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 a handkerchief just happened to flutter by at that moment in just the right position to, to cover up the saint's penis. Um, there's a mention of that, at which point we realize we're, we're not watching a scene of martyrdom, we're watching a painting of a scene of martyrdom. And we realize that we are being given a description of a, a of the choices that someone made and how to depict this thing. So there's the actual martyrdom, and then there's this depiction of the martyrdom. And within that depiction, there are various choices. There is we're told that the the um, the Caesar, the the demonic Caesar, the antichrist-like Caesar, uh, is given the scowling face of the patron who was hated by the guy who made the painting, <laughs> which is sort of great. Uh, painters, uh, Renaissance painters were famous for putting, for exercising grudges with the selection of faces in their, in their, um, in their paintings, especially paintings of judgment and suffering. Uh, so there's the, there's the martyrdom itself. There's the painting of the martyrdom. There's the relationship between the painting and the painter's own life. And there's also the relationship between the martyrdom and the the world to come, right? Because the whole premise of a martyrdom is that it's bearing witness, that you allow your body here to be destroyed, not simply to let it be destroyed, but because that corresponds to something elsewhere. This is not the real life. The real life is somewhere else, yeah? And that's a correspondence that Megan doesn't really fully address until the end of the poem, which is, uh, one of the most well, let's just um, let's just put it this way. This is not a poem that trails off at the ending. This is a poem of lengthy description that is not going nowhere. Um, I'll read it once. I may not read it again because it's well. I'm going to read it twice because you know what? This is not a real episode. This is just a warm up. It's just a practice. It's just a it's a sketch. I'm going to read it twice. I may not say all that much about it, but it's worth hearing twice. This is done on this side by Joshua Megan, it's a, um, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can see the image and the poem itself. Uh, it's ekphrasis, right? It's a poem about art, but it's not just a poem about art. It's about the martyrdom of St. Lawrence. They are all there. The boys, like radiantly lovely teenaged girls, flying to you with a palm or a jeweled crown or goblet where you lie attractively on the hard grate over the red coals, the green cloth fortuitous, the nude men in torqued attitudes who stoke the fire, the bathhouse, the platonic exercise, the platonic exercise, of course, we're calling the 
Plato's vision of the divided line, Plato is all forever identifying the correspondence between the things on earth and the forms of things beyond the, the world of shadows down here and the world of forms, the real world up above. Sorry, brief digression, let's get back to the poem. The nude men in torqued attitudes who stoke the fire, the bathhouse, the platonic exercise, and far up near one corner, pointing down, it's one corner of the painting, skirted and epauletted, Caesar, highest, seated where Caesar sits, the granite drape of his vermilion cape, and there beneath it Caesar's bare breast, and Caesar likewise, torqued, with pointing down, with such, such pointing down. Your Antichrist, you being St. Lawrence, this is the poem is addressed to him, the dying man. Your Antichrist, this Caesar is. Your Antichrist, his face the face of the maker's long-hated, long-born patron, crowned with green, a green laurel that fast withereth too between a pair of golden sphinxes that fast withereth too. And golden eagles, although one has to stand and look around a while to see him, really. And everyone's eyes, the vast clear eyes of sibyls, acolytes, virgins also, priestesses, whores, posed all in their red and saffron robes, the eyes blue, the blue of blue diamonds, the eyes of the faithful upturned, of the whole choir of saints, of a veiled crone, her hand spilling a bowl of useless money. A child is there beside her proffering cherries, and another child, blonde, his small green apple, the apple meaning something, and everyone's eyes, everyone's eyes on you. The saints have all died for nothing. They are not alone. I know that um, Cameron and now Elijah have both pointed out that the new formalists all and their, and their unclean progeny have uh, rely too often as we do on a houseman, but I can't help but hear a little bit maybe in that um, a green laurel that fast withereth too between a pair of golden sphinxes that fast withereth too. I can't help but hear a little bit. Uh, and early though the laurel grows, it withers quicker than the rose. Um, Oh, that's sorry. Echo joined me for this recording session, and she's now having puppy dreams in the corner of the room. So you might hear her yipping at some some dream frogs and rabbits uh, over there. It's okay, baby. It's okay. Um, there's a line. What's how does the line um that poem ends uh, to an athlete dying young? Uh, Garland briefer than a girl's. Um, yeah, I can't help but hear a little bit of Hausman there, and and of course. This is not just a poem of a, uh, this is not just a depiction of a Christian martyrdom. This is also a painting that takes in all of these other old uh, ways of life, right? The Sibyls, the old, um, the prophetesses, the women through whom Apollo spoke, the acolytes, the virgins, the priestesses. These are not, um, these are not Christians, right? These are pagans. And for the person painting this scene, these were people who obviously believed in false reality, right? They, they believed in all these correspondences too. They had a whole equally elaborate system of uh, analogs and theirs was false, right? Theirs was a, a false other world, a false set of gods. They, they believed that the things they did on this earth, like Lawrence, they, they believed they corresponded to something elsewhere, but they were wrong. There was nothing on the, on, the, on the other side of that correspondence. Of course, now we're looking at the scene of St. Lawrence, who's happily volunteering to let himself be grilled to death, one of the more painful deaths imaginable, particularly when, at least in the case of this legend, he's awake the whole time. We're told here, and I do love this line, um, the veiled crone, her hand spilling a bowl of useless money. And I, th I can think of maybe at least three ways in which that money is useless. One is that um, it's painted money. It's not money, right? It's useless. It's literally useless. Two is that for someone who is at the end of life, for an old crone, money, you know, my granddad died a rich man. 
Yeah. Money couldn't buy him what he wanted, which was to be young again. And of course, in the Christian vision, money is always useless, right? It's one of the things of this world. Uh, Radix malorum cupiditas est. The love of money is the root of all evil. The root of evil. I think it doesn't say the root of all evil originally. Uh, the, use, the useless money, I think, is quite good. And then, and then just, <laughs> it's, I, think it's a, I mean, I think for a Christian painting in a Christian magazine and for a poet, right? Uh, for a poet with as much knowledge of, you know, uh, classical literature as, as Megan, I just think it's a really funny joke, right? Because the line is, <laughs> he's talking about all the different things in this in this painting and of course like there was the there's christian correspondence right there's christian sort of s symbology all the way system of you know how things are supposed to mean and what they correspond to in the other world there's the pagan version of that there's also the the painterly version of that right he's got his own private correspondences like the face of his you know uh, loathed patron but then there's also there's a whole system for kind of how how things are supposed to mean in renaissance paintings how what the different elements add up to or point to and if you are a, a, a an art history scholar you know this correspondence but megan just says the, another child blonde his small green apple the apple meaning something <laughs> just, just, it's like you might as well say like oh there's also a cross in this painting the cross meaning something <laughs> it's like if there's any there's any symbol that could be more ham-fisted so to speak uh it's an apple in a christian painting but uh but i love it i think josh is exactly right just to, i think it's just something so great about that the apple meaning something just <laughs> whatever because because ultimately it doesn't matter what it means it doesn't matter what it means. It doesn't matter what the money means. It doesn't matter what St. Lawrence's martyrdom means. It doesn't matter what all of the priestesses and acolytes and virgins and their symbols and their gestures mean because they're all wrong. On the other, on the other side of all of their correspondences, there is waiting, exactly what's waiting for Lawrence at the end of this ordeal. I'm going to read this poem one more time, then I'm going to call it because... It is 600 o'clock. Someday I'm going to have to record this episode because I think it's actually going to be pretty good. This is Done on This Side by Joshua Meekin, published in Image in issue 113 and selected by none other than Shane McRae, with whom I disagree about many things, but for whom I have uh, enormous respect and will have more to disagree about with soon enough. What's the line in uh, Greg Williamson's poems? The 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 rain you came in out of for is a great poem about grammar all right this is done on this side by joshua megan if i sound a little delirious it's because i am so tired that i'm a little delirious they are all there the boys like radiantly lovely teenaged girls flying to you with a palm or a jeweled crown or goblet where you lie attractively on the hard grate over the red coals. The green cloth fortuitous. The nude men in torqued attitudes who stoke the fire. The bathhouse. The platonic exercise. And far up near one corner pointing down, skirted and epauletted, Caesar, highest, seated where Caesar sits the granite drape of his vermilion cape, and there beneath it, Caesar's bare breast, and Caesar likewise torqued with pointing down, with such, such pointing down, your antichrist, his face the face of the maker's long-hated, long-born patron, crowned with green, a green laurel that fast withereth too, between a pair of golden sphinxes that fast withereth too, and golden eagles, although one has to stand and look around a while to see him, really. And everyone's eyes, the vast clear eyes of sibyls, acolytes, virgins also, priestesses, whores, posed all in their red and saffron robes, the eyes blue, the blue of blue diamonds, the eyes of the faithful upturned, of the whole choir of saints, of a veiled crone, her hand spilling a bowl of useless money, a child is there beside her proffering cherries, and another child, blonde, his small green apple, 
the apple meaning something and everyone's eyes, everyone's eyes on you. The saints have all died for nothing. They are not alone. All right, that was this week's show. Thank you all so much for listening. You can reach me as always at sleeverickets at gmail.com. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>